I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig with details. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hey, everybody. Hey, y'all. I'm Eli. I'm Diana. Welcome back to Ridiculous Romance. That's right. The show where we talk about true romances through history. Yes, the weirdest, freakiest, funniest, sometimes (laughs) even most wonderful ones we can find. Right, the most heartwarming. (laughs) Today's is actually a very cool story. These aren't freaks. These are really awesome people. Amazing people. Talking about these non-binary artists, Claude Cahoon and Marcel Moore. From the 1920s through World War II. I'm so excited about this story. Oh, These are awesome people. They are so cool. Yep. Not like me. I uh, just came over here to sit down and my phone flashlight was on. And oh. I'm like, wow, I'm an old man. Ah, You caught a glimpse of your face and startled yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's bad. Yeah. It's bad. Uh, the oldest I ever felt, I think. And I was like probably 32 at the time. Which so... You know, not that long ago. <laughs> I don't remember where I was, uh, Starbucks or something. And a much younger girl, probably 20 or something, looked up at me and said, oh, your flashlight's on in your pocket. Oh. And my and I pull my phone out and sure enough, just the flashlight is beaming out of my pocket. And I was like, I felt like a 90-year-old person who had never used technology before. And this whippersnapper just came up and was like, hey, um, can, do you need me to show you how that works? Hey, Grandpa. So... <laughs> like, mm, <laughs> that stings. The oldest I ever felt. Well, actually, I feel old kind of a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Because, like... well, no, because I, I'll text with my cousin, Sarah. She's, yes. uh, she's like 12 or right. 13 or right. something. 
So yeah, yeah you're she'll asking get on, for it at that point. I know. Like <laughs> she'll be on Snapchat or she'll send me a meme or something. And I'm like, oh, like y'all just don't even care if there's really a joke. Like it's just some random <laughs> collection <laughs> or some random stuff. Sometimes, you know, um, dick jokes are still popular. So there's still I'm good. Like <laughs> I can still, whoa, 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 I can whoa. still hang. Wait a minute. I don't know if you should be making dick jokes with your 12-year-old cousin. Listen, I don't really, but she does. Yeah, I guess that's what I was doing when I was 12, too. <laughs> uh, do her parents listen to this show? I don't. Uh, I know that my aunt does, which Uh-oh. is her grandma. Her grandmother. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes Sarah will. And she told me she actually was right after we came out with the Rob Black Messiah yeah. episode, which was about shock pornography. So right. it was very, uh, very R-rated episode and she texts me and she's like i'm listening to your show by the way and i was like i hope not (laughs) that this is not the episode for you to listen to yikes and she goes no 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 my grandma always tells me when i can listen so i was like (laughs) thank you to aunt shell (laughs) for gatekeeping episodes from the children these kids these days I know. I'm gl- I'm glad she's interested in it. I no, mean, definitely. sometimes get listeners say they listen with their kids or yeah. their their teenagers or something. I think that's pretty cool. I think that's great. Um, I mean, sorry like, we curse or whatever, but it's about sex. So yeah, I, I think we've gotten better at the cursing. I mean, somebody no, said we got worse, and I'm like, I, we definitely have not gotten worse because no. a lot of it just comes from nervousness. I think a lot of cursing is just like I don't know what else to say, or I don't have an adjective here. Or I'm I'm trying to go faster than my brain. So you kind of fill in by stuttering. Well, I think it depends on the story, too, because some make me mad. And that's when I curse a lot. Yes, you do. Some don't make me mad. So I'm like, I'm not cursing because I'm not angry. (laughs) There's no reason to curse at these two, for example, although there's plenty of reason to curse at the Nazis. That's very true because they were dealing with that. Yeah. And yeah, I I was really interested in this story because I'm not only because of who they are, Claude and Marcel alone, but like usually when you're going through history and you're looking at resistance movements during World War II against the Nazis, Mm -hmm. it's usually stuff like blowing up a train or, uh, you know, some daring spy mission or smuggling Jewish people to safety and all really cool, incredible, thrilling stories to hear. But a lot of people's resistance during that time was very small. And so some of my personal favorite World War II stories are these tiny acts of like malicious compliance or sabotage, just little things like that, that I I find so human because it's just us pushing back in the tiniest, even in a way we find insignificant in the larger picture, but it makes us feel like, okay, I did something. Right. (laughs) It can be really inspiring because even if it seems like this tiny little chip you're still chipping away at a wall and eventually it falls. So today we really want to tell you about this resistance movement on the island of Jersey that made occupying Nazis believe there was this widespread conspiracy amongst their own ranks to rebel against Hitler. But actually, it was just two middle-aged artists who had been rebelling in many ways for many years, long before the Nazis were ever thought of. Yes. And it's such a cool story. So let's learn about Claude Cahoon and Marcel Moore, the surrealist artist turned Nazi resistance. Let's go. Hey there, friends, come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance, we'll put it in a show, Ridiculous Romance. A production of iHeartRadio. All right, the first thing we want to say about Claude Cahoon is that they were born Lucy Schwab in 1894, but they were always kind of experimenting with their own gender presentation and identity. Oh, right on. 
Now, Claude did use she, her pronouns in her own writing, but a lot of scholars have argued that if they had been around at that time, they would have preferred they, them pronouns, mm-hmm, if they, mm-hmm. you know, if those had been widely used. So yeah. in our episode, we'll probably interchange she, her, and they, them when talking about Claude. Right. Just throwing it out there yeah. for y'all. So Claude Cahun was born Lucy Schwab in Nantes, France, to a family of wealthy Jewish intellectuals and publishers. And she had a lot of art bona fides. Like her uncle was the avant-garde writer Marcel Schwab. And her great uncle was an Orientalist named David Leon Cahun. An Orientalist was like a Western European artist who specialized in subjects from the Orient or rather from Asia and the Middle East. Oh, this was like a big there was a lot of Arabic art going on, a lot of Chinese, Japanese art kind of being incorporated into sure. Western art. It was sort of one of the first times I think we gave a shit about a culture, <laughs> a European culture. <laughs> right, right. So probably at the time it was considered kind of progressive, which is weird to think of now. Interesting. Obviously, since Oriental is like not a good Even name. Even though they, <laughs> they were probably just going over there and be like, look at this fascinating art. Uh, yeah, let me take it home so everyone else can look at it too. Allow me to co-opt this. Uh-huh. Now, when Lucy was only four years old, her mother began suffering from mental illness pretty severely. And it wasn't long before she was put into an institution full time. So Lucy was mostly raised by her grandmother. Okay. And like early on in life, Lucy is questioning her gender identity. She's very young. She starts experimenting with different names, including Daniel Douglas after Lord Alfred Douglas. Oh. Past episode alert. Yeah, we remember him. So she tried a different, few different names until she settled on Claude Cahoon in 1914. Cahoon after her great uncle, David, and also her grandmother who raised her, and Claude, because in French, Claude could be male or female. Oh. Um. So they wanted kind of a non-binary, gender-neutral name. Yeah. Claude wrote once, quote, masculine, Feminine? It depends on the situation. Neuter is the only gender that always suits me. And as a teenager, Claude suffered from anorexia, suicidal thoughts, and debilitating depression like her mother. Oh, that's tough. Mm -hmm. You could see wanting to kind of explore your identity a lot if you're having those sort of, uh, you know, what what feel like uh, kind of a a dysmorphia, like, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of like I'm not happy with my body. Yes. You know, what? what's something that, what's a big thing I can sort of question and see whether I would be happier if it was different. Right. Anorexia has dysmorphia built into it. Yeah, exactly. You, you're not seeing yourself yeah. the way you are. Yeah. But it also is a lot about control. So I wonder if, you know, their childhood felt very out of control. Their mom is to these institutions. That makes wherever sense. Wherever their dad is, they're going to their grandma's. So they're like, this is the one thing I can control is how much food's going into my body wow. at any given time. Yeah. You know? But... Claude's life changed in 1909 when they met Suzanne Malherbe. And she was this 17-year-old girl. She was an art student. Uh, her father was a doctor. And when they met, they both described it as, quote, a thunderbolt meeting. Aww. I mean, just total love at first sight. Just that instant. Uh, the heavens collided. Right. And, the, and when the dust settled, we were there together. Right. Just like like a sense of kin. Incredible. Yeah. One time I just I asked my dad like how he knew mom was someone he wanted to go out with. Yeah. Or whatever. And he was like, I don't know. Just when I met her, I felt like I already knew her. Huh. And I thought that was such a cute like way to say that. And it kind of sounds like that for them. Like they met each other. and Like you're already my person. Yeah. It already feels right. That's funny. I think when we met, it was like, hmm, let's see. Oh, no. (laughs) Maybe. Yeah. Wait a minute. 
no, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is good. Do you think I, that summarizes? That your thought process, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously yours was, oh my God, I got to lock this down. Oh, this yeah. is a once in a lifetime opportunity. Uh-huh. I was immediately in. <laughs> this guy, I cannot let this solid gold get away from me. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually true because he would like make me cookies in the middle of the night. And I mean, that's like, fair. There's I not many make cookies. There's not many guys who will do that for you. That's true. That's true. <laughs> All right. So these two met Thunderbolt meeting, mm-hmm. you know, incredible sparks flying right away. They basically immediately began both a romantic and creative partnership right there and then. Mm-hmm. By 1912, just three years later, Claude was experimenting with the portrait photography that would eventually make them notable. And they were writing poetry. By 1916, Suzanne had established herself as a graphic artist, and she was illustrating fashion designs and publicity materials. But even this commercial work had very avant-garde elements. Uh, Like in one fashion plate that she did in 1915, she drew this woman with a boyish haircut wearing a loose-fitting blazer and flared pants. Right. At the, at the time, the 1915, the 20s had not come around yet. They were not so, quite there yet. <laughs> so not only does Suzanne predict the mode garçon fashion future, an art historian and professor named Terza True Latimer on QueerCulturalCenter.org draws our attention to the shadow in this picture. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very obtrusive. It's kind of illogically placed. It doesn't make a lot of sense with where the light is coming from in the picture. And it even kind of obscures the background in places. And this sort of elevated the image from, you know, just a, a, a your basic ass fashion advertisement into this really like more striking and surreal artistic illustration. Like it really made it special. Yeah. In a way that if, if you look at it and we'll we'll post a lot of these pictures on our Instagram yes. for this episode. So make sure you follow us there. Uh you know, you see this shadow and it doesn't make a lot of sense. And I'm thinking, boy, if I drew it, it would look like this because I'm bad at drawing. <laughs> but she makes it very intentional and mm-hmm. it has purpose to it. Right. Uh, and I think that's really cool. And it makes you look at it. just makes you want to look at yeah. it because it's a little off. Yeah, you're like, what's Which going is the on? whole point of avant-garde, right? Was that it was sort of just a little yeah. wrong. And so you felt like you're in a dream. Not to mention it's the whole point of advertising. Right, exactly. Is make people look at it. Yes. In 1917, though, Claude and Suzanne's relationship took a bit of a strange turn when Suzanne's widowed mother married Claude's divorced father, making them stepsisters eight years after their romantic relationship had begun. So in most writing, when you look them up, they're referred to as the sisters, even though their their romantic connection did come first, you know. And, you know, this, Seems like the most awkward thing that could possibly happen yes. <laughs> <laughs> to a couple. Pretty pretty good premise for a fun rom-com, though. That's true. That's true. I could see that. Be like, Suzanne didn't know what to do. <laughs> oh, Suzanne, I'm so glad you're home. I've been wanting to introduce you to someone I've been seeing. Claude's father? Now they'll have to learn what it's like <laughs> to be sisters in love. <laughs> That's what it's called. Sisters, sisters in, in love. love. From... McGee or something. McGee? <laughs> Where's McGee been? I don't know. Not just making seems movies. like a project he would be into. <laughs> I don't know, man. I mean, it's been a long time since, I've seen, since anybody's seen a McGee, McGee joint. A McGee joint. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, anyway, one day we'll make the Claude Suzanne McGee version yeah. of their story. We'll go, <laughs> It'll we'll be the most to... boring movie ever made. Hey, Warner Brothers, have we got a movie for you? <laughs> it's called Sisters in Love. <laughs> it's called... And they're like, wait, what? <laughs> they're going to be like security? It's <laughs> like a flowers in the attic thing or what's going on? <laughs> So, yeah, this seems like something that is very weird and awkward and probably not something you would want to happen. No. With your loved one. No. But Terza Latimer does point out that this was probably a kind of a blessing in disguise because it allowed the two of them to live together without anyone suspecting their true relationship. Oh, so sure. So they had like a really good cover story for why they were together all the time that was more acceptable than we're gay lovers together. But the thing is, this dynamic of everyone thinking of them as sisters is also part of the problem in their legacy, kind of in a way, because Suzanne, who ended up taking her own gender neutral pseudonym, Marcel Moore, is actually very often erased from conversations about Claude's photographs. Claude's art is often called self-portraiture, but they likely could not have done it without Marcel's assistance. And they both wanted us to know it. Terza True Latimer shows this example where uh, they, there's a photograph and the subject is Claude as the, the model in the photograph. But at the bottom right hand corner, you can see the shadow of Marcel's head positioned, as Latimer writes, quote, where we're conditioned to look for the artist's signature. Uh-huh. So it's almost like she Marcel's shadow is the signature. Like, I look who took this picture. Yeah. So not only does this show us that you know, the level of important involvement that Marcel had in the art that Claude created. But it also kind of asks us to think about the role of the viewer rather than taking on like a voyeuristic quality. We know that someone else within the world of the portrait is looking at this subject. So it's about Marcel looking at Claude rather than us looking into this picture frame. Right. Right. And I think that's so fascinating the way they played with the gaze. Yeah. In in gaze as in G A Z E. Right, because they they played with the gaze. <laughs> they also too. played with the gaze. But like <laughs> they, uh, I just read their uh they yeah. really they wanted to play a lot with who's looking, even a lot of Claude's or Marcel's pictures where they look back at the yeah. camera. Yeah. What they're looking at and what angle and everything. It's all much very much a part of the message of the art. Yeah. And what you're supposed to be thinking about as you're looking at it. Right, because you gotta look at photography is like really new at this point. Mm-hmm. And everybody is just kind of using photographs to record things that really happened, like things that are true. Like I'm snapshotting reality. Now you can look at it anytime in this picture. But these two are like subverting those expectations, right? Not just about their gender expression, but like what photography is. They're playing with it as like an art form. You know, Mm -hmm. they're showing things that couldn't exist in reality, which is sort of what became the surrealist movement. Yeah, they're showing fantasy. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting. Remember, we talked about Henry and Caress Crosby in the past episode, and they were also around the 20s publishing work and were some of the first people to consider photography to be an art form. Yeah. So I think it's really interesting to think about the idea of like, oh, a picture is realistic. I'm taking a picture of you and that is exactly how you look at this time and this place. And there's no lie in right. this photo. Right. And Claude and Marcel were like, but there could be a lie. Exactly. Or I could show you what could be true later. If I have, in, in another world. Yeah. Or in another time. If I have the tools of reality in my hand, why would I not tinker with it? Yeah. To manipulate reality. You know, that's that's like God level kind of stuff. Yeah. 
and it's very cool. Yeah. But we are going to share a lot of pictures. Oh, they, they, have they some do some really dope awesome stuff. stuff. I mean, I love surrealism. Yeah. I always kind of have. I know, it's um, your fave. It's really more accurate to call these two an artistic team or collaborators. Mm -hmm. uh, even as India Burjita Jarvis writes in her article, Historical Heroines, quote, two halves of a whole identity. Yeah. yeah. Which, again, I think of another episode, Christo and Jean-Claude. Christo and Jean-Claude, yes. Two uh, artists, ar artists, again. Yeah. Right? Who collaborated together. Jean-Claude was extremely important yep. to what work was made and how it was made. But everyone calls it a Christo, a Christo, a Christo. And it's the very same thing. Claude, it's always Claude Cahoon's work, Claude Cahoon's work. But they're like, Marcel is an essential part of this work. I kind of want to link that episode in the show notes, because I, if you haven't heard that Christo episode and, and Jean-Claude, it's so cool. Incredible. I love it. And some of the resources were very interesting talking about that because they were just talking about like how art, the art world really prefers a solo genius like right. this very special person who could, you know, only this person could be this type of person. Right. Instead of a collaborative teamwork effort, which is actually harder. <laughs> it's har I think it's harder to marry multiple visions than to create your own all, all alone. Right. So in 1920, Claude and Marcel left the provinces and they moved to Paris. And they attended poetry readings, Russian ballets, literary salons, gallery exhibitions and theater productions with some of the weirdest and coolest artists in France. Um, and we will hear all about it right after this. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking. When we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. 
That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Welcome back, everybody. So Claude and Marcel are in the thick of it all in Paris in 1920. And of course, they continued to produce art. Now, their work, of course, was often about playing with gender identity and expression. Mm -hmm. Uh, Costuming and staging were very important elements. Right. Claude often has a shaved head and they pose in a way that kind of obscures their body. So that makes them appear to be genderless. Oh, okay. Um, Sometimes they look like both genders. Sometimes they're very lean, very hard into masculinity, sometimes very hard into femininity. So they're constantly playing. In one portrait, Claude wears like heavyweight boxing shorts and they hold weights like they're a heavyweight boxer. But they also have pasties on their nipples and these painted on kind of Cupid's bow lips Mm -hmm. and spit curls to emphasize their femininity. And the picture is captioned, don't kiss me, I'm in training. Love it. I know, right? So good. (laughs) So cool. And Latimer says this kind of, (laughs) oh, go ahead. No, I'm just laughing at that. I know. A lot of the captions are so witty and cute. Like, (laughs) Don't kiss me. I'm in training. I'm in training. It's so good. Yes. She has another one where it, they have another one where it's but it's them. It's two of their own heads. Like uh-huh. it's a photo collage kind of thing. And one of their heads is sort of looking at the other one with this kind of weird face on. And the, the caption is, what do you want from me? Yeah, I love that. <laughs> Which I love, well, too, because how often are you saying to yourself, like, what do you what do you want? Yes. <laughs> You're making no sense. Yes. Also, I mean, just. Don't kiss me. I'm in training. It, it says so much too because it's also saying, "Can do I need to give you a reason? Yeah, not to just walk up and kiss me. Don't Fine. I'm training for boxing right now. I'll punch you in the kisser." <laughs> <laughs> Literally, right? And actually, that's something Terza True Latimer is talking about in their article, "Acting Out," and she says this kind of invites us to question what Claude is in training for exactly, mm. like training to be a boxer. Or training to learn to be a woman or to unlearn being a woman or how to be a lesbian or, you know, what are they in training for? Mm. Um, Just training for life. Like, don't interrupt me. (laughs) Get out of my way. Who knows? So it just lets you ask a lot of questions. And Latimer points out, you know, that at this period of time, quote, theories emphasizing the role of social conditioning in the production of gender We're coming into circulation at this time. Mm. Also in 1929, Claude translated the writing of Havelock Ellis into French. Havelock Ellis was a doctor who studied human sexuality, and he had very controversial theories about a third sex that united female and male traits, but were neither. He's like very early on, like Magnus Hirschfeld, one of these early sex scientists who's like trying to understand instead of condemn. And that's that's in a... I feel like probably several non-Western cultures, especially that's common. Exactly. Yeah. And um, I mean, you know, there, there you go. This is a, this is such a cool thing about history. It does not happen in a vacuum. Yeah. You have Orientalism, for lack of a better phrase, right. coming into vogue. Right. So uh-huh. Eastern cultures are much more interesting to people. They're looking into it. They must yeah. have seen stuff about, oh, this third sex. Yeah. Um, what is that? How, how, you know, kind of opening up your mind a little bit. I and mean, maybe that had something to do with that. Especially for people who are probably like, like, oh, wow, this very rigid, stiff, stuffy way of life I've been living mm-hmm. isn't fulfilling me. I feel right. kind of bored and and constrained. Yeah, right. <laughs> when I'm alive in the physical universe and it feels like it should be more exciting than this. For real. Yeah. And also Dada is painter Marcel Duchamp 
even like unveiled a female alter ego of oh. his that he named Rose Selvany. Mm. But as the artstory.org points out, unlike Duchamp, Claude and Marcel's gender neutral pseudonyms and their artwork and everything were, quote, not about changing gender, but about escaping such oppositional constructed ties altogether. Ah, yes. So very much non-binary life before mm-hmm. that was even a fully understood right. idea. Right. I've always found that very interesting, the idea of kind of gender bending mm-hmm. in some ways, in some fashion, also still reinforces the idea that a gender is supposed to be something yes. or look like something yeah. or wear something. Um, you know, and the more we sort of break it down and say, look, I'm, you know, if I wear a skirt, I'm not dressing like a woman. Right. You know, that's probably something that should change. Uh, tying particular looks or names or whatever to uh, one gender or the other. Right. And how much have we talked in the past about like you wore a man's clothes, you were a man. Like people literally could not grasp that you had a different body under there. Right, right. Other portraits that these two created together, some of them have Claude sort of as a like a character of an aviator or a dandy, a doll, a bodybuilder, a vampire or an angel buddha in one of them uh there's one where it's a japanese puppet and the museum of modern art website says that claude once explained quote under this mask another mask i will never finish removing all these faces Mm. i I love it yes so interesting it's like i'm not you know whomst amongst us (laughs) is one thing right and if you take this off of me there's there's something else in there and can you ever find right. the one true face? Right. Is there only one? Probably why, not. Why would you want one? Right. Again, like we're here for X number of, you know, years if we're lucky mm-hmm. in a in a goofy ass mess of <laughs> protons, neutrons and electrons right. that all gooped together to make this thing. And wh- why are you, why are we deciding what that needs to mean? You know, right, what it has or- to be in relation to each other and stuff like that. Yeah, and like limiting yeah. so much of what we can experience yeah. or feel or enjoy. Yeah. While Claude and Marcel were in Paris, the surrealist movement began. And this was headed up by André Breton, who they did make friends with, even though this guy, if you don't know him, he was a homophobe and a mm-hmm. misogynist. Yeah. In fact, the whole surrealist movement was kind of homophobic and misogynist. Yeah. Right. Louise Downey writes in Heritage Magazine, quote, It was a very much male-dominated group led by André Breton. The function and image of women in surrealist art was often the role of muse, child, or femme fatale. Women were treated as objects to inspire male genius. Their bodies were for use as aesthetic objects and for male desire. Mm. But in Claude's photographs, as MoMA explains, they quote, staged images of themselves that challenged the idea of static gender. Mm. Right? And maybe that's why Breton never really liked Claude, right? He didn't <laughs> like their weird outfits. He hated their same-sex relationship. But they were so damn good. They were so right. brilliant. And c- coming up with this, like, just unthought of uh, techniques and and compositions, even he had to put some respect on their name. That's right. He once said that Claude was, quote, one of the most curious spirits of our time. <laughs> Which I love. It's a compliment and also not a compliment at the same right. time. He's just like, that's a weirdo over there. Uh-huh. And yeah, even though they were never like, quote unquote, official members of the surrealist movement. Which, how do you? I know. Was there was a there, list? Well, 
it was a card, but it was printed on an orange peel. Oh, okay. You know? yeah. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> Surrealist sense. Right. Um, so yeah, they were never like officially on the orange peel list or whatever. But <laughs> it should be noted that they were both at the forefront of that aesthetic. Yeah. In the mid-1920s, a publisher asked Claude to write basically an autobiography, what mm. the publisher called a confessional. And Claude was real reluctant because, you know, they're kind of like under this face, another face. How could I ever explain to you? Sure. I, I could never get it down to just fact, quote unquote okay. fact. There's no mm -hmm. such thing as fact, in my opinion. I am Claude. I am an artist. Right. And I am a rhinoceros. <laughs> and I am a liquid puddle on the ground. That's right. <laughs> Probably. I mean, pretty much. <laughs> pretty right? much, right? Um, so then two years later, in 1928, Claude handed this publisher friend a manuscript of their book, Avoue Non Avenue, which is translated in different places as disavowed confessions, Ooh. canceled confessions, mm. disavowals, or simply denials. Okay. Now, Latimer calls it a, quote, anti-realist, indeed surrealistic critique of autobiography oh. because it's both confession and denial at the same time. Okay. Sounds like the Weird Al movie. Right? <laughs> it, right? Right? Like, Claude probably would have fucking loved the Weird Al movie. Let's be real. <laughs> Claude's like, you write your own story, baby. In the introduction, Claude writes, quote, Until I see everything clearly, I want to hunt myself down, struggle with myself. Hmm. Which I think it, it describes their art a lot, too. Because, again, yeah. it's a lot of exploring who they are and what they could be. And sure. Everything. So that publisher friend did decline the manuscript. Oh. <laughs> they were like, this is a little far out for me. But it was published by the anti-Nazi publishing house Carrefour in 1930. And since we don't have a full poem by Claude to share with you, we're going to share some of what they wrote in this collection of, quote, poem essays or essay poems. So let's go down to Poetry Essay Corner and hear a few excerpts from Avoue Non Avenue, by Claude Cahoon. I welcomed young monsters into myself and nurtured them, but the makeup I had used seemed indelible. I rubbed so hard to remove it that I took off all the skin and my soul, like a flayed face, naked, no longer had a human form. Surely you are not claiming to be more homosexual than I? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Permit me to warn reckless young women. Seeing the trap doesn't prevent you from getting caught in it, and that doubles the pleasure. What does a well-behaved child dream about, apart from the inhumane, the monstrous, the impossible, the ordinary? Ooh, may the birds not expect any speeches about aviation from me. Oh my god, <laughs> boy, we need that. Quote, I want that written in the sky. That is for my everyone. I was like, that's the most poetic way to say stay in your lane. Stay that I've in ever your heard. lane. <laughs> you know what? I'm not going to go give the birds a monologue about flying. Which I love because surely they're like, stop telling me what a woman is. Yeah. Stop telling me what a man is. Yeah. I'm a human being and yep. I know what it is. Yeah. I'll tell you. You know, I just think that's interesting. Don't tell me about my own life. So good. Angels with patched wings, sails. Flirtations, last minute modesties. Let's use up heaven down to the dregs, the verb down to the insult, the espadrille and the lyre down to the last string. I am ambiguous to you, neuter. 
You can neither make head nor tails of me. I provoke your metoxophobia, your fear of the in-between. I challenge you to a dual gaze. Who looks away first loses. Ooh, that's so good. The dual gaze. Look, we're both going to look at each other. Can you handle it? Because I, I can handle it. That's right. And she, I mean, they do spell it dual. Yeah. D-U-E-L. Yeah. So not just dual, yeah. D-U-A-L, two gays, but yeah. rather I'm challenging you to fight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Brilliant. Now, besides writing this surrealist, uh, you know, anti-biography, mm-hmm. Claude and Marcel made their mark in other ways on the overall surrealist movement. In one of their photos of Claude in Trafalgar Square with this flower arrangement obscuring their heads surrounded by birds, it's been reprinted in several books about surrealism. I I took a look. I've definitely seen this before. Mm -hmm. You probably have, too. It's very cool. Very surreal. Mm -hmm. Very much looks like a dream. And in addition, according to Terza Latimer, Claude not only, quote, signed but helped compose many of the political tracks generated by Breton and his supporters during the 1930s. Right. And this was an I didn't want to get too much into this, but it's another interesting parallel to today. Yeah. In a way, was that Claude was like, my life is already politicized. Yeah. My identity is politicized. Right. I'm Jewish in the 30s. So beyond any sexuality, gender identity, anything, my very existence is being politically debated. Yeah. Now, Claude and Marcel were also creating puppets. And like and surrealist photos that involve these puppets that, quote, negotiated between the theater of political opposition and the theater of dreams, the psyche and the revolution, the two poles, in other words, of surrealist practice. One of their puppets, for example, was of like this Nazi soldier, but it was created from the pages of a communist newspaper. And this was meant to show the, quote, merger of two totalitarian schools of thought, that of Hitler and that of Stalin. Mm. Oh, they almost form the same kind of murder machine, don't they? (laughs) And it was basically this schism that spelled the end of the Surrealist movement in 1935, because many of the artists joined the French Communist Party at the expense of their Surrealist activities. But Claude and Marcel, along with André Breton, kind of rejected the idea that communism was the only answer to rising fascism. Uh Uh-huh. It was people being like, how do we really fix this Hitler problem? Yeah. Well, I know we'll do it in the political arena. And they felt that art, again, was political and could play its part. Yeah. In an essay that Claude wrote called Bets Are On, theartstory.org writes that Claude, quote, promotes a type of art that uses poetry rather than propaganda to spread its message through indirect action, oh. as they called it. And Breton loved this. I think it was after they wrote this that Breton was like, I guess you're all right. (laughs) You're a curious spirit there. So, yeah, even again, just to say, even though their names are not in the list of historic surrealists, they did help create that movement. They were fully part of founding that. It's got to be interesting, too, to kind of ally with someone like Breton, this like homophobe and chauvinist against rising fascism. Right. Right? Which was like a lot of their whole platform, too. I know. So you really, I mean, you know, strange bedfellows, which, of course, Breton would say, no strange bedfellows. I know, right? (laughs) I only want predictable bedfellows. (laughs) Or I'll take strange bed ladies. Yeah. (laughs) But no bedfellows for me. (laughs) So Claude and Marcel spent 17 years in Paris 
They made poetry, essays, articles, sculptures, photo montages, portraits, collages, theatrical productions. They founded this, you know, they helped found the surrealist movement and they got involved in politics. Sure. And the body of work that they created in that time is enough to make an episode about them. It's enough to give them a place in history. But their greatest project was yet to come. And we will get to that right after these words. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. Welcome back. So in 1935, Claude co-founded a group protesting the rise of Hitler and the spread of fascism. But Paris was becoming kind of an uncomfortable place to be Jewish, like so many places at that time. Mm -hmm. So in 1937, they chose to move to the island of Jersey. Yeah, they had spent a lot of childhood vacations there. Sure. So they were highly familiar with the island of Jersey. They were into it. They were like, let's go where we were happy. They were like, you know Jersey? Oh, I know Jersey. <laughs> let's go to the Jersey Shore, baby. <laughs> but after France fell to the Nazis in 1940, Jersey and Guernsey were occupied by the Nazis. That was the closest the Nazis ever got to actually getting into England. Mm-hmm. Most people left these islands as quickly as they could, but Claude and Marcel decided they weren't going nowhere. 
They said, we, we'll, we'll, art, we'll art our way out of this. I'm old. I'm sick of moving. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I'm going to stay right here. Mm-hmm. It's like those people that stay at the foot of the volcano. And they're like, <laughs> it's erupting tomorrow. And they're like, yeah, but I'm still working on that wicker furniture outside. I'm going nowhere. The artstory.org says, quote, at this time, Cahoon and Moore started to use their original names again, and they became known as Les Madames to the other local inhabitants of Jersey, and they gained a reputation for strange behaviors, such as taking their cat for a walk on a leash and wearing trousers. What? So everyone in Jersey is just like, oh, who are these two ladies over here that are walking their cats? Uh, Lucy and Suzanne, they're always wearing pants. <laughs> uh, you know what? They're clearly old and kooky. Right. And this is how we all talk in Jersey. <laughs> what I love about that, too, is that they clearly were like, you know, trying to be a little DL. They're like, we'll be right. Lucy and Suzanne. Yeah. You know, we'll try to look like sisters. You know, yep. we're not going to parade our relationship around. It's kind of dangerous. Um, But they also were like, and also we're still weird and we're not going to conform yeah. completely. So I kind of love that they sort of found a, a like a line to walk, I guess. There's nothing, uh, no character I like better. Than a than a kook in their fifties, you know, just total unconventional weirdo yes. out there living life. They they're like, I've done the thing for too long, and now I'm gonna be myself. Right, you know. I think what? we should all aspire to that, if I not younger. These two would also sunbathe naked together. It, likely not anywhere where people could see them. <laughs> right, <laughs> but uh, you know, most people just assumed that they were a couple of weirdo spinster sisters, and of course. This was a really good cover for them. That's right, because their biggest project during the Nazi occupation was resistance. Yes. Putting their political, artistic, and writing abilities to work, they launched an anti-Nazi propaganda campaign that reached every corner of the island. Awesome. That indirect action that Claude had espoused in Bets Are On. Oh, sure. Um, Jeffrey H. Jackson, a history professor, wrote the definitive biography of this particular part of their lives in his book, Paper Bullets, mm. which I love the the idea of paper bullets. Paper bullets That's is brilliant. so cool. He says it all started when the two of them found a photo in a German magazine of a marching regiment of soldiers. And of course, this is a German magazine. It's supposed to make them look really badass and cool and they're winning and everything's going great. But the two were struck by the fact that the top of the photo featured the soldiers' arms swinging, that it had a sense of action and progress, but the bottom featured their mud-covered boots. And it kind of made them look, as Claude wrote in a letter, quote, as though they were stuck in mud. Oh. So Claude and Marcel ripped the picture in half. They just kept the part of the boots looking like they were stuck in mud. Right. They wrote, own end, or without end in German. Across ah. it. Sorry if I pronounced that wrong. And then they removed this beloved picture they had of Oscar Wilde and Lord Alfred Douglas huh? from a beautiful frame they had. And they replaced it with these endlessly marching mud-covered Nazis oh, in this okay. like beautiful frame. Then they snuck into this abandoned house that was about to become soldiers' quarters. And they hung the picture on a wall right where the sun would hit it and make it impossible to ignore. Yes. Jackson writes in Paper Bullets, quote, the soldiers might not immediately see the image, but when they did, each would likely think that perhaps one of the other men had hung it. Such a thought might sow confusion and mistrust in their ranks. Yes. And Claude and Marcel hoped the men would start thinking that Hitler's war might never end. Oh, I love that. Yeah. You know, some soldier cool? sees these boots and is like, you know, now that I think about it, <laughs> I are we going to be doing this forever? Now, this was just the beginning. 
for Claude and Marcel. These artists would listen to the BBC, which was illegal to do. Right. And they would translate what was said into German, which Marcel was fluent in. Although, obviously, the Nazi occupiers didn't know that she was. Mm -hmm. They would type up or write the words on small pieces of tissue paper, and they would sign them, the soldier with no name. Mm -hmm. As an example, one famous message was a drawing of a Nazi soldier on a sinking ship called the SS Reich sporting a swastika flag and clearly like waving his arms desperately in the air hoping to be rescued i mean uh, it's a pretty so clear message yeah. <laughs> most of the messages that claude put out would urge the troops to mutiny and shoot their officers mm-hmm. and then claude and marcel would get dressed up and attend german military events And this allowed them to kind of slide up to soldiers and slip these little pamphlets into their pockets or like put them on their chairs. They were there when they came to sit back down. Usually Marcel was the one doing this. And I I just can't imagine the danger they were putting themselves in to do this. It's incredible. It's so funny, too, to like pickpocket, but you're adding. In reverse. It's like a put pocket. Yeah, put pocket. (laughs) (laughs) They're a put pocket. But yeah, apparently Marcel took the greatest risks. Yeah. So that's cool, too. Again, Marcel doesn't get as much uh, attention as Claude, but Marcel's balls of steel. I mean, we're talking about somebody sliding an illegal pamphlet saying, please shoot your officer into some guy's pocket and hoping he don't notice. That's I mean, (laughs) you know, I I would get scared passing a note to my friend in the back of French class (laughs) that just said, like, you know, farts with a little picture of a cloud on it. (laughs) And we'd like giggle and stuff. And the the, the scariest thing in the world would be someone to say, Eli, what was on that note? You want to share with the class? (laughs) No. (laughs) But scary. Oh, my God. So scary. Other times they would hide messages inside the cover of a cigarette box. Be like, Mm -hmm. oh, you left your smokes over here. Um, Sometimes they would hide these messages in the pages of German language magazines. Sometimes they'd even just crumple them up on a piece of paper and throw them through the windows of cars. Right. Of like German officers' Uh cars. One of the biggest pranks was when they hung a banner in a church that said, quote, Jesus is great, but Hitler is greater. Because Jesus died for people, but people die for Hitler. Um, Whoa. Wow. That is like, oh, my God, that's the most <laughs> ice cold burn. And I, uh, totally roasted. Totally roasted. 100%. And they hung a banner? I know, like, right? They, uh, that takes a second. <laughs> that's not like slipping something <laughs> into not, someone's pocket. That ain't no quick thing. You got to first show up with a banner. All right. And then the, the pastor has to be like, sure, you need some thumbtacks or like, what do you need? Uh, did anyone see anyone walk through these doors with a <laughs> giant banner in their hands? Mm, not I. Not I. This is another cool thing and kind of frustrating thing as a person who likes history about pockets of resistance to yeah. the Nazis is that even after the Nazis were gone, people still didn't talk about it. You know, they were like, yeah. it still could put you in danger. Yeah. Some people are still alive. They still have feelings about what happened or whatever. And I need to keep this to myself. For sure. So there's plenty of things that we're never going to know anything about yeah. that people did. And so I imagine they show up at this church. Somebody looked the other way to let them hang that up. Yeah, you exactly. I mean? Exactly. Now, for four years, Claude and Marcel did this. Incredible. Four years they got away with this. And it drove the Nazis crazy. The best thing to do. I know. I'm incredible. (laughs) These guys were convinced that there was some widespread conspiracy within their ranks. So there was this large scale resistance movement going on right under their noses. Mm. And it was like making them so crazy that they couldn't figure out who it was. 
But then in 1944, the woman who sold Claude and Marcel the tissue paper that they used to write these messages on informed on them. And Claude and Marcel were arrested for treason. They were both subjected to, quote, arduous interrogation, Mm. as Latimer calls it, because they would not reveal the names of their collaborators. Wow. And that's because the Nazis were convinced that some men must be involved. (laughs) These are two 50-something women. I mean, what can you do? There's no way you're doing this by yourself. Oh, these are just a couple of old ladies. They're not capable of anything but being grandmothers (laughs) and baking cookies. And having some cats. Mm -hmm. Now tell me the name of the man who masterminded this entire amazing (laughs) resistance movement. Who takes your photographs? (laughs) Where did you get those pants? (laughs) Some man gave you his pants. (laughs) Now as Claude Cahoon put it, quote, they were forced at the end of the day to condemn us without believing in our existence. Wow. So Claude and Marcel were charged with listening to the radio mm-hmm. and inciting the troops to rebellion. And the first charge had a sentence of six years in prison. The second charge had a death sentence. Ugh. And apparently after she heard this, Claude stood up in the courtroom and asked the judge which sentence would be served first. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> She also apparently said that she would have to be shot twice, once for being a resistor and once for being Jewish. Wow. And all this wit got a big laugh in the courtroom. <laughs> and <laughs> no one could deny that shit was funny. Wow. <laughs> Except for the, uh, the, the prosecuting Nazi officer probably took off his hat and punched a hole right through I it. know. He's like, mm. oh, I hate ones that are funnier than me. <laughs> so Claude and Marcel were thrown into separate prison cells. And this was the first time since they met that they would ever live apart. It's unclear from records whether their death sentences were commuted or if the Nazis just ran out of time because the island of Jersey and our heroines were both liberated when the Allies showed up in 1945. But by then, their house had already been requisitioned by the Nazis. So, of course, most of the art inside was destroyed, including artwork by Max Ernst and Joan Miro. But sadly, prison was really detrimental to Claude's health, uh, which had never been great to begin with. But, you know, we can imagine how terribly they were treated in jail, considering that they were Jewish and a lesbian and a resistor, which is like the trifecta of Nazi hatred. Right. Right. They died in 1954 at the age of 60. Marcel relocated to a smaller house and there's literally absolutely just nothing recorded about her until 1972. And she died by suicide. And she's buried next to Claude in St. Prelade's Church in Jersey. Claude and Marcel's life and legacy were pretty much lost to history until the 1990s, when Francois Le Perlier published the biography Claude Cahun, Mask and Metamorphoses. Then in 2007, none other than David Bowie, who is, of course, another appreciator of playing with gender expression right? and presentation, curated an exhibit of Claude Cahoon's work for the New York Highline Festival. Claude and Marcel's radical exploration and challenging of femininity, gender, beauty, social and economic boundaries, everything that they had encompassed in their work, had finally been unearthed and given new appreciation. In 2018, a street in France near where they had lived in Montparnasse was named for them. 
And that same year, Christian Dior unveiled an entire androgynous fashion line inspired by Claude Cahoon. Amazing. Um, they also got like a Google Doodle and stuff. So just yeah. really recently, you know, a lot of interest around their work. And these two were obviously incredible artists. They refused to be defined by anything, not their time, their gender, society, their government, not even their work defined them. They were constantly experimenting, like constantly playing, like we said, just manipulating reality in every way that they could. And their commitment to one another is equally amazing. Uh, India Brigitte Jarvis, in that article, Historical Heroines, wrote, quote, from 1908 to Cahoon's death in 1954, they lived together, first in Nantes, then in Paris, then Jersey, created and published together, walked their cats on leashes together, sunbathed naked together, resisted Nazi occupation together, were arrested together, and sentenced to death together. Mm. So really, you know, a total twin flame kind of situation. Yeah. You like know? once they were like, this is it, that was it. Like they were inextricably linked. Yeah. I mean, they were so ahead of their time. That even now, like a hundred years later, their work is still a revelation. Yeah. They're still saying things that are fresh and weird and new. Yeah. But something I love about them, too, is that they always appreciated that the gaze of the viewer or the participation of the reader was essential to the work, which is something that I really love about theater and performance in general. Yeah. I feel like theater without an audience is a rehearsal. Right. You, you, it's not done until it's put in front of someone and you yeah. get to have that energy come back to you. Agreed. And, you know, that's just something I find so powerful about it. So to use Claude's own words, quote, if the adventuress has managed to get rid of the whole paraphernalia of facts, has made herself invisible man and invisible woman, it's due to the indispensable collaboration of the reader. And I love that because I think you and I have talked too about when you take in art or watch a movie or something, the yeah. way you're watching it really matters. Yes. The mood you're in, if you're willing to go along with it or not, it changes if you like it. Yeah. So you have to collaborate in the work that you take in and consume. The collaboration of the observer of a piece of art. I, I, I just love looking at that because it affects the art. Mm -hmm. It is what the art is in many cases about is the impact that it has, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and I like being an observer. <laughs> <laughs> I like participating in that respect. Yeah. And I there's so many times when I'm like, oh, I just, I wasn't in the mood for this. Yeah. So I can't tell you if it was good or bad, objectively or even subjectively. I was not willing to receive it. Yeah. So yep. I, you know... Maybe one day when I am, <laughs> I, I kind of felt that we watched Hubie Halloween, that uh, Adam Sandler yeah. Halloween movie. Wow. What a thing to compare to Claude and Marcel's I know, work. It's, I don't even like it that much, but I just remember we put it on and I was like, okay, it's an Adam Sandler. Like I'm in the mood, you know, I'm, I've got my headspace together for an Adam Sandler movie. Uh -huh. I am fine with whatever dumb shit he wants to do. Mm -hmm. And it was more enjoyable, period, than when I, if you sit there and watch with your arms folded and you're like ready to hate it, you're not going <laughs> to like it, even if it is very good. Meanwhile, what's funny to me is that I grew up appreciating Adam, Adam Sandler, Sandler more than you did. I know. And I couldn't, I couldn't get myself in that space for Hubie Halloween. That was no. one where I was like, I don't care how much I prepared myself for what I was about to get. <laughs> I, was I was bothered every second That's of everything. That's fair. It was a, kind of an annoying movie. But I just remember <laughs> that was just a moment when it felt really clear to me that like, oh, you were yeah. willing to receive this movie and the spirit that it was given to you. Yeah. And it made you enjoy it more. Yeah. Than you I've had have. moods. I was, um, here's, here's a story. I was in, while we're talking about bad movies. Mm-hmm. 
I was coming out of a phase of depression that I had in my 20s mm-hmm. and really had had a particularly bad day. And not because of this, but just circumstantially, my dad and I had decided to go see a movie that day. And I was like struggling to get myself out of the house. But, just you know, we went, we decided to go. We saw Wanted, mm-hmm. right? With uh, James McAvoy and Angelina Jolie. Right. And the bullets bend. The bullet bending the movie. Yeah. And as I watched that movie and just kind of climbed out of the funk that I was in, I walked out of that movie and was like, this is one of my favorite movies. <laughs> I loved it. I, I, had, I felt so much better walking out of it than I did going into it. Mm-hmm. And so for a while, I was telling people, I tell you what, guys, I really liked Wanted mm-hmm. to the point that when we had a friend group movie night going That's right. and it was my turn to pick, I said, hey, everybody, let's watch Wanted. <laughs> And it was one of the most uncomfortable movie viewing experiences I've had because from minute 10 onwards, you could tell everybody else in the room was hating it. Aww. And I didn't even care for it that much when we watched it again. And I, I think I had prefaced it with like, I saw this in a bad mood and it made me feel better. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it's really good. I just I liked it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really like it very much the second time. But but talk about your headspace and your experience affecting how you how you felt about a work of art, right? Yeah, absolutely. As big of a stretch as it may be to call wanted a work of art, but right. you well, know what I mean. I mean yeah. You know what I mean. But yeah, I think I, I had that too with like some friends of mine when I worked at the restaurant. Yeah. I didn't go to too many like arts events, and I remember um, kind of asking why, and they'd be like, "Well, I just feel like I don't get it, or I don't know how to act." And I was like, "But yeah. you don't have to get it. I mean, you don't have to like it. Yeah. You're not." No one, I mean, the artist, of course, would prefer it, I'm sure. But you don't actually have to like it. Any way that you feel about it is fine. Yeah. And I think if you go into an art, any art thing, period, even if it's wanted or whatever it is, thinking it's okay however I feel about this, but I'm ready to like it. Yeah. I'm ready to receive it. First of all, it makes it more enjoyable. Even if you don't end up liking the art itself, the experience is more enjoyable. You'll have a better time, yeah. And you don't have to feel shamed. Like, you you don't need to feel like out of the loop with the art world or some shit. Right. Like, I, I, don't, I don't really have a lot of patience with that. So I remember we went to something and I was like, they, they were like laughing at times that I thought were inappropriate during mm-hmm. this performance. Mm-hmm. And I remember I kind of frowned at one of them. They're like, oh, sh-, you know, and I saw the shame. That was that right. sense of like, oh, I, I, this is not my world. I'm a guest here yeah. and I shouldn't be acting like this. And I felt ashamed because I was like, you just made them dislike this more. You made mm. them feel alienated from this experience. Like right, they were not right. allowed to be here. And I went, I was like, I'm so sorry I did that. Do, if you want to laugh, laugh. It's, it's not up to me to decide when you should laugh. If you feel uncomfortable, that is a human response. Right. If you right. think it's funny, that's a human response. That's fair. When you put art out there, that's what you're asking for is a human response. Mm-hmm. Of course, there are ways to be disrespectful yeah, during a performance. Yeah. But, you know, that's not what they were. They weren't being disruptive. They were really just reacting. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so you can tell the difference. There's a line. For sure. But uh, but yeah, so I just remember just having that was such a like a thunderbolt moment for me, I guess, <laughs> was uh, kind of feeling like, oh, you know, this is what makes people feel like they can't participate in this world. Yeah. So I want to get back to their resistance, too, because I was so struck by. Um, as we're reading through this, I'm thinking it's important to be reminded that this kind of stuff works, right? Because yeah. I think it's so easy to say, oh, um, you know, a, a little piece of art is irrelevant. It, it's a drop in the bucket. It's it's throwing a pebble at a giant. 
Mm-hmm. You know, oh, that's cute that you made your little art as a resistance piece or something. But what are you actually doing? Mm-hmm. If you're not out there using your hands and getting stuff done, it doesn't matter. But it does. It matters so much. It's it's like really effective. And like you said, it's chipping away at the wall. Yes. And little chips matter. Yeah. And, you know, uh, everybody's looking at all the men and the elves and the dwarves and their big powerful weapons and stuff and they're not paying attention to the hobbits oh, yeah. taking the ring to, to Mount Doom. It's so easy to dismiss that stuff as fantasy and inspirational story and oh that's cute but what's it actually doing? Right. Um, and then right. to see a story where it it mattered. You know they had an yeah. impact. I don't know that they brought down the Nazis by themselves but think what all those soldiers on that island might have been accomplishing if they weren't worried about where's this resistance movement that's exactly. hiding right underneath us. They must have spent some time or resources yeah. trying to find the men that they were so sure yep. were in charge of this. And they must have been questioning each other. Yeah. That's the other thing. Is oh they're God. so right that it doesn't take that much to just make the distrust matters. Yeah. Like, like army, you know, uh, troop morale is really important. Yep. And it sounds like, oh, you, you know, give them some chocolate. What's the big deal? But it like makes them able to fight. You know? yeah. like, and they were keeping that from happening. Like, yeah, it's it's it is often seen, I feel like, as a way that, oh, you made yourself feel better because you did a little something uh-huh. and it's not really going to accomplish anything. But you feel like you did something. Right. And that exists, too. Absolutely. It does. But but yeah, I think. And also, is that a bad thing Yeah, it, for me to if that's all I can control is how I feel. I made myself feel like I did something. Right. Maybe you don't find it as useful as other things I could do, but you don't know my situation, yeah. what I'm capable of or what I'm able to do in my space where I'm at. So I love that they kind of straight up found they were like, do what you can with what you have where you are. And so they said, we got these soldiers. We got our skills. How can we shake this tree? Yeah. And I bet there were some soldiers that did definitely leave. I mean, or try, you know, um, or at least want to and yeah. had had questions Look, that they didn't have before. You put any group of people together, <laughs> right? Whether it's just 10 dudes or 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 a whole battalion or whatever, and there's drama mm-hmm. and there's trust issues and there's people trying to outmaneuver each other and all this stuff. It's not hard to poke and prod and cause a bunch of strife right. within any group of people. Uh, you know, take it from me. I was in a theater company. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So it, it, I, I love those kinds of movements because they're they're mm-hmm. so effective. And I'll tell you what, bad people are doing that. They know that to be true. Yep. So you got to you got to do it back. That's right. I just think this is such a cool story. I yep. love Claude and Marcel. So I hope that you love their story as much as I did. Claude Cahoon and Marcel Moore, please look them up so you can see some of their work. As Eli said, we will be posting a lot of pictures on our Instagram. Please look it up and let us know what you thought. Our email is ridicromance at gmail.com. That's right. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Ogreat. It's Eli. I'm at Dynamite Boom. And the show is at Ridic Romance. And we're on TikTok at Ridiculous Romance as well. That's right. Follow along. Uh, make sure you catch us at the next episode and we will see you then. Love you. Bye. Bye-bye. So long, friends. It's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and aunts to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. 
This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL Schedule Release, presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.